Judges chapter 6. Go ahead and open up your Bible today if you have a Bible with you on your phone or whatever is fine as well, of course. If you remember from last time, we saw the depravity of the townspeople. Okay, the here is this people, the nation of Israel, the recipients of God's law and his covenant faithfulness, and yet they're choosing to side with Baal. They're choosing to side with the Canaanite and the Amorite gods. Rather than serve the God who has delivered their people, rather than serve the God who has promised to bless them if they keep the covenant, rather than be satisfied with Yahweh, the people in their sin, in their depravity, which we noted right last time was rightly called like a total depravity, they ended up putting their faith in Baal and Asherah instead. They believed they needed more than Yahweh. And essentially, their relationship with Yahweh was no more than a civil religion at this point. Uh, the vast majority of the nation of Israel didn't have a true and living faith. It, they would, it would cycle like this. Despite all of this, and despite the wickedness and rebellion of national Israel, God was going to be faithful to his covenant promises because he intended to bring a savior of all who believe, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue from national Israel. So God raises up Gideon to be the judge, a man who was just as depraved, just as sinful as the people that we read about last week, the people who wanted to kill Gideon for tearing down the statues or the altars. And God chose this Gideon. He reveals himself to him. He gives him instruction so that he may properly serve him as a judge of Israel. And this very instruction makes Gideon the enemy of the people that God intends to deliver. So there should be no doubt in our minds of the fact that God is patient and faithful to the elect. He even causes his kindness to be displayed before those who hate him for the sake of the elect. And so we ended last week by looking at the response of the townspeople to Gideon's act of obedience and tearing down these altars, the altars of Baal and Asherah. You remember their response, I hope. They figure out that it was Gideon because he had 10 people with him that were helping him. So somebody snitched on him, I'm assuming. And their response was to go and find Gideon. And they go to his, his house, his dad's house where his dad lived. And he tell Joash uh, to, to bring Gideon out so that he may die. They're going to murder him. And that's where we ended. So let's pick it up at the next passage. Uh, beginning at verse 31. In Judges chapter 6, this is the reading of the word of the Lord. We're actually going to read to 35. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. And they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulun, and to Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the things that you teach us in it. I know that every time we approach your word, Lord, it is so living and it is so rich that we never get 
all that we could from out of it. It is profitable for us to be in it multiple times. So we ask that as we are in it for this short time tonight, that you would grant us understanding of the things that we need to know, and that you would help us to have a greater trust, a greater faith, a greater belief in you and your gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. So what I want to do with this section is break it down into three sections or three observations uh, from, from the text. First, the might of God. Secondly, the ministry of the Spirit in the Old Covenant. And then lastly, the willingness of the people. And just for a heads up, we're only going to be covering that first point tonight. We'll do the, the next two points. Not next week, because next week we're going to finish up the Q&A. And then to the week after that, we'll do... Um, Verses 33 to 35. So first, the might of God. Um, we're going to come at this from a negative perspective first, because we find out in the text that the might of Baal is severely lacking. So much so that Gideon's dad renames Gideon Jerubbaal, which essentially means let Baal prove himself. And of course he does it, and this sticks with Gideon as a testimony to the lack of Baal's might. But what about you know God's might? That's what we're going to try to think of from a, from a negative perspective, considering Baal first. Um, so the Israelites are ready to kill Gideon, but they first need to get by his dad, and they ask for his dad to deliver him up to die. If they were wise and not fools, they would be anticipating God the Father sending his son to die for sins. But that's not where their mind is. They're wanting this dad to send his son out just so that he can die for the action that he did, which they think is a sin, but it really, in fact, wasn't a sin. They wanted Gideon to die for tearing down those altars. And what will Gideon's dad think, after all? I mean, these are his altars. They weren't just the town's altars. They were Joash's altars. They were on his property, and they were his property. Gideon had to take his, his dad's bull or bulls and accomplish the job. But as we mentioned last week, not everyone responds the same in our account. And Gideon's dad, Joash, he's not simply wanting to kill Gideon like this townspeople are. He's not uh, willing to simply kill Gideon, at least for his offense. And it's hard to say why for sure. Uh, God is sovereign, and he isn't about to let his perfect plan not come to pass. But humanly speaking, perhaps Joash is feeling as if Baal is a mistake, if worshiping Baal is a mistake. You know, perhaps he's thinking that, well, here my son did this. Maybe, you know, maybe I've been in the wrong. And so we're not going to I'm not going to hand Gideon over. Maybe he's thinking along those lines. Maybe he's just having pity on his son. Or perhaps he's simply wanting to know if Baal is like Yahweh, because, you know, as we know, Joash knows the history of Israel. He taught it to Gideon. We read that a a few verses back. Uh, He knows about the plagues, the plagues in Egypt. He knows about the crossing of the Red Sea. He knows about the time in the wilderness and the way that God displays his, himself in, in, that, in that period. He, um, he knows all of this. He knows that Yahweh is a mighty God who can and does contend for himself. And I hope you understand what it means to contend. He means like to stand up for himself, to defend, in other words. And so maybe he's just wanting to see if Baal is, in fact, even worthy of worship. And I kind of lean to that third option personally. I don't think that Joash is really having pity on his son at this point because he's waiting to see if Baal would do something himself to Gideon, right? It's not like he's, it's not like he's interceding 
for Gideon. It's not like he's praying to Baal for mercy so that Gideon doesn't die. He's saying, well, let's see if Baal kills my son, which is, you know, not something I would do as a dad, right? But it's interesting, interesting um, point of view. I'm not worried about Baal killing my sons. Not at all. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. I'm not worried about that. God's will will be done. So this is what's happening in verse 31. Baal is put to the, te- to the test. And do you, hopefully you see that. Uh, Joash tells the bloodthirsty mob at his door, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? You know, let, let Baal do this, in other words. So I'm reminded of the passage that we read in Isaiah last week. Remember there he mocks the makers of idols and those who uh, worship the idols as well. And of course, if this was a true God, he doesn't need to have a, a physical re- representation of himself make, created and then worship as if he inhabits the statue. It's exactly why God forbids this act for himself in the second commandment and then the worship of any supposed deity in the second commandment. So it's up to Baal now. If if anyone harms Gideon, he will be punished with death himself, because this is a time of testing for Baal. Will Baal contend for himself? Will he have vengeance on Gideon for Gideon doing this? And notice what Joash says at the end of the verse. He says, if he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. And Baal, not now, not ever, will ever be able to contend for himself. Like you were asking, Steve, I don't have to worry about that. He's not a god. He has no might. He is worshipped only out of the hearts of sinful people, of people who hate the true Lord. And it is just as it is true for anyone who rejects Yahweh and worships something else. There's no real might in them either. No real power to bring redemption and deliverance and prosperity. No power over death and sin. Only the true God can do those things and only the true God can overcome sin and death. So it's very, this whole account is very similar to an account that would we read, read later on in Scripture as well. Um, Elijah puts the prophets of Baal to a similar kind of test in 1 Kings chapter 18. I kind of wonder if Elijah remembered Baal's failure to act here in the time of Judges, and maybe that's why he just like straight savages the prophets of Baal at that point. Do you remember what happens in that context? There's There's... All these prophets of all, they're just Elijah by himself, the lone prophet for the true God. And they have him, they, this is world craft trolling. Yeah, I mean, it even makes Isaiah's trolling about the idols kind of seem tame. Um, he has them set up these two different altars. There's 12 stones um, and they pour water on the altars as well, too. And they ask their gods to rain down fire from the heavens uh, to consume it. And so the prophets of Baal, they're, they're praying and nothing's happening. And they start like cutting themselves and they start like doing all these things that, that they think will make their God act and nothing happens. Yeah, and Elijah just mocks him. He's like, well, maybe he's asleep or maybe he's going to the bathroom and you may, he just can't hear you. Cry louder. And of course, you know, nothing happens because Baal can't contend for himself. And then Yahweh at that point rains down fire and it consumes like everything, both of the altars. So... You know, but Baal, you know, again, we're going to see it more than once, even just here, other places in scripture as well, where he is not able to deliver. He is not a real God. He is not on the same plane of existence as Yahweh. Baal only exists in the minds of wicked men and sinners that don't trust the true and living Lord. Yahweh is self-existing. He doesn't depend upon anyway, doesn't need anything at all. 
So if you're not familiar with the rest of Judges, Baal doesn't do anything ever. Uh, he can't. He's not God. He can't contend for himself. And so the God of the Bible is much different. He is to be feared. Uh, multiple texts proclaim that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Not this sort of, because the point that I'm trying to make is that if Baal was real, Gideon should be afraid, right? If, if he did this to Baal and, and Baal was this real deity that could do something, Gideon should be terrified. But he doesn't need to be. Uh, what people need to have is a fear of the Lord. Because the Bible instructs us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or is the beginning of knowledge. It says those two phrases multiple times, multiple texts. Not the sort of fear that you might have, like if you came face to face with a full-grown lion. Um, although, you know, God can kill you just like that lion, obviously could as well. But not the sort of fear that you have when you hear a strange sound in your house in the middle of the night. A fear that respects God for who he is. A fear that causes you to listen and to heed what he says. A fear that ultimately causes you to look to God and go to him for help because he is the only one who can help you. All right, that's, that's the sort of fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And we understand, right, that when we are saved, God is saving us from his very own wrath. He's not, he's not saving us from some other God. He's not saving us from Satan and some punishment that Satan wants to impose upon us. There are no other gods, of course. And Jesus lived a perfect life and then went to the cross to pay the penalty that our sin earned. He absorbed the wrath of God onto himself so that those who trust in him would not bear it. They would not have to bear the wrath of God. Jesus bore that wrath of God. In Isaiah, we read that the father was pleased to crush the son. And what's the reason? so that the elect, so that all those who truly believe in him and, and trust in Christ and who have been born of the Spirit, that they would be saved. God saves us from himself. And it is necessary that this is the case because our God is so mighty. He's the only one that can deliver us from himself. There's no one strong enough to. It has to be him. He is the only one. And make no mistake, God will contend for himself. Every person is made in the image of God. We call it the, the Imago Dei. Have you guys heard of that term before? No. It's just the Latin term for the image of God, the Imago Dei. But it, it's, it means um, a whole lot more than just you know, the image of God. That just sounds like a, a very basic thing. We don't have time to go into it, but there's a lot that, that it entails. But what happened in the fall... Uh, that event in the garden when Adam sinned and plunged all mankind into sin and death, is that the Imago Dei was damaged. Uh, it was marred. It had a sin ruined it. And God is going to contend uh, with people for their sin, their own sin and the sin that Adam committed, that, that plunged all of mankind into. He is the living God. Just a few examples of God contending for himself, okay? We could look at a lot of examples. There's there's many to choose from in the Old Testament especially. I mean, the situation with Elijah would be an example even of God contending for himself. But let's go to the New Testament just so that we are clear that God doesn't change. His character, his attributes, they are the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There's no change at all. So turn with me to Acts chapter 5. That would be the fifth book in the New Testament, so right after the four gospel accounts. You're probably familiar with this story. 
But I'll read from verse, beginning at verse um, 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So at this point, what was happening is the early, in the early church, people were selling their possessions that they had so that and they were all coming together and to live in this community as the church began in, in the New Testament era, in the New Covenant era, because there was a lot of persecution at the time. And so, so they sell their property and they, they keep a portion of it back and they lay the rest at the apostles' feet. And it says in verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died, in other words. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this much or for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they buried her out, or they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, it's not to say that God does this every time someone sins against him, right? It's not to say that, you know, that when any time anybody tries to tell a lie to God, tries to do something and think that God is not going to know or see it, that God does this. More often, God is merciful and patient and with fallen with fallen man and with redeemed man as well. But the point here is clear, isn't it? Just like in the Old Covenant and, uh, and before the Old Covenant as well, God would contend for himself even here now in the New Covenant. He acts and he judges and he displays his wrath when he chooses to do so. And now, here in the New Testament, which details the New Covenant and God's dealing with people inside the New Covenant, God is still contending for himself. You never put God to the test, friends. It's not a safe game to play. Perhaps God will be merciful. Perhaps not. Why risk it? Now, ironically, the next text we deal with in Judges, Gideon will put God to the test, but it's a little bit different. He uses the fleece story. It's not a test over life and death, really hanging in the balance, but we'll deal with that soon. But certainly, Yahweh will contend for himself. One more example you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So just two more books over. This is verse 16 and 17. And there he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So this is in the context of the church, okay? The church, meaning the people of God, those people who are united to Christ in faith, those people who are professing faith in Christ, those people who are who have been baptized and who say that they are trusting in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ for forgiveness of their sins. And right before this passage, the Apostle Paul was explaining how the people of God are like a building with Jesus as the foundation of the building. And since Jesus is holy, then all who are attached to him are holy as well, and the building is best thought of as a temple. 
the place where God dwells. Uh, the spirit of Christ is in, is in every believer, Romans 8, 9 says. And this, so this is a warning to those who would destroy the church with false teaching. He's not talking about suicide or murder here, although those are, of course, both sins. But he's speaking about those people who corrupt the church with heresy, with blasphemy. And it's clear God will destroy the one who does that. God will contend for himself. And there's another way that we need to think of this as well. Every sin, every sin that any person ever does causes God to contend for himself against that person because of the Imago Dei. And Romans 3.23 says that all mankind sins and falls short of the glory of God. And God will contend for himself over this matter. Yes, he is loving, but he is also too holy to simply just overlook sins against him. And at the same time, in his mercy and his love, he has given people from all over the world, in every nation or tribe, a way in which God's wrath won't fall on you. It's the gospel. The proclamation that God took on flesh. He took on a human nature and that he lived a holy life, never once sinning. That would be the person of Jesus. And then in God's plan, Jesus goes to the cross. Having never sinned himself, having never done anything wrong, he goes to this Roman torture device. And he goes to the cross to where the plan is for him to die. And while he's there on the cross, he takes upon himself the punishment of sin for all who would believe. And then he dies and he is buried according to the scriptures and he rises on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And he is seen by many witnesses until he ascends to heaven to the right hand of the father where he now lives forever to make intercession for us to, in other words, he contends for us rather than for just himself. And everyone who repents of their sin and believes in him will be saved. So you see, our our sin deceives us greatly, friends. Even though we aren't in the old covenant with God like Gideon was, we can still be like Gideon today. Our relationship with the Lord can amount to nothing more than a civil religion, just a Christian in name only, you know? It's just the way you are brought up. It's just the, the things that you've, that you've always known. But in reality, you're at the, you're at the altar of your idol way more than you are at the foot of the throne of the Lord. Now, you guys all know your heart, you know, I, I hope at least. I, I can't see into those things. The leaders out here can't see into your hearts to know the truth. You guys all know, though. And are you truly believing and trusting in the Lord? Are you trusting in the forgiveness of your sins that he has offered to us in Christ? Or is God someone that you don't really think you need in your life, but, you know, you're here anyway, aren't you? Or maybe, you know, you're not sure, and that's okay to not be sure as well. Talk to me about that. Talk to the leaders that are here. Talk to your parents. Sin can deceive us greatly. And be assured, God will contend for himself against every person that has ever lived, or he will have contended for us himself. So the question before us all is, do you want God to contend for you? Or do you want to stand before God and be responsible for all of your own sin to pay the penalty for that? Because God will contend for himself. He's not like Baal. But again, God has made a way that he contends for us in Christ. And so look to Christ. Thanks to God because he is gracious 
And he's the only one that can successfully contend for us as well. We can't contend for ourselves before the Lord. That's the gospel, according to Judges. I probably do. I need to keep saying that this is the gospel, according to Judges. Do we understand the gospel in Judges? <laughs> I hope so. Yes. We do. Okay. Let's pray, you guys. Our Father in heaven, we know there is none like you. Father, Son, and Spirit, there is none mightier than you, Yahweh. And we know that you are not like Baal, that you will, in fact, contend for yourself. You let no sin go unpunished. Uh, we know that our sins are great. There are even many sins that we commit that we don't even know, that we're not aware of. So our only hope, Lord, is to confess that you are our hope, uh, that you have done for us what we were not able to do in Christ. And so we thank you for the righteousness of Christ, and we pray that you would cause our faith to grow, to increase, that you would set our minds and our hearts upon Jesus and the forgiveness that he alone can offer. We don't want to stand before you responsible for the things that we've done, Lord, because we know that the, the weight of them is too much for us to bear. And if some of us here in this room don't understand that, we pray that you would sovereignly intervene and make it so that that is clearly understood because we praise you for the great Savior that we have in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.